When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Lloyd about Miss Morton and the English House Party murder. Catherine Lloyd's earlier novels, eight books featuring Miss Lucy Harrington and Major Robert Curland, were set during the early 19th century English Regency, mostly in the rural village of Curland St. Mary. Miss Morton and the English House Party murder moves the action forward to the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. London, 1837. Caroline stiffened as her aunt, Lady Eleanor Greenwood, cast a dismissive glance around the highly over-decorated drawing room of No. 8 Half Moon Street. It was well past the usual time for calling, but her aunt had never been one to worry about such niceties when she considered a person socially beneath her. Really, Caroline, a rented house? Does your employer not have the means to buy something decent for herself? I'm fairly certain she does, ma'am, Caroline said, but she hasn't decided whether she wishes to stay in London for more than just the current season. And if she doesn't like it, does she intend to drag you back up north with her? I must assume she is a widow, because no husband would allow her to spend so much money on such frivolities. Aunt Eleanor shuddered, making the three tall feathers on her bonnet quiver. She had a sharp face, a pointed nose, and a pinched mouth that currently signaled her disapproval. Where does her money come from? And now, please join me in welcoming Catherine Lloyd. Hello, Catherine. I look forward to speaking with you today. Oh, hi, Carolyn. Before we get into Caroline Morton and her world, tell us how you got into writing fiction in the first place. Well, I think I was always one of those kids whose report card said, you know, if Catherine just focused her abilities, she would be very successful. Um, she seems to be away with the fairies, which was, was fairly true. So I think I always made stuff up. And um, when I moved over to the U.S. in 1998, um, my husband was working, but I didn't have a visa. I had three kids you know, three boys, which was a handful. But I did have, for the first time, some spare time to actually do something. And I'd always wanted to write a book. Um, so that was what I did. I kind of set myself a five-year plan, agreed with my husband, because he loves plans, um, you know, that I would attempt to get published. And at that point, it was romance, uh, get published in romance in, in five years. And it took me, I think, four years, 11 months, to get published because back in those days, I think it was a lot longer, more laborious process. Um, so I had my first 
romance novel published in 2005, I think it was, and uh, have been publishing romance ever since then. And, and then my um, editor, who is my romance editor, knew I had a history degree and asked me if I'd be interested in writing historical fiction or something else. And uh, I didn't want to write historical fiction because that's a lot of work, but I did want to write cosy historical mysteries, and that's where it came from, really. And how did you, that turn into the Curl and St. Mary series? I think I was watching Rear Window, and I suddenly had this... I'd been thinking about the idea of writing historical fiction and looking for a, a good, you know, sort of a key for that, for something that inspired me. And I watched Rear Window, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of set something back in the Regency time, which is a time I'm very familiar with, because that's where my historical background is. And, and I felt it was important to have a good grounding in that before I started. And I just watched Rear Window, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have the man of action, you know, the Regency soldier, hero of Waterloo, man of action, stuck in a bed, while the, the overloaded Regency Vicar's daughter was the one who actually had to do all the sleuthing. And I like that concept. And so my editor said, can you put that in you know, a proposal format, which is what I did. And uh, that's how it came about. So tell us a bit about Robert and Lucy as characters before we move on. Uh, neither one is exactly a typical Regency hero or heroine, as you mentioned. How would you describe them, including what makes them good amateur detectives? I think it's interesting, as I said, to have that man of action who's suffered, you know, from his experience in the war. He's been badly injured. His horse fell on him. He's also afraid of horses, which is, you know, for that time period, it's actually quite a, quite a difficult thing. He's also been brought up in that tradition where you can't show fear and you can't, you know, you can't show emotion. So that was interesting to have a character like that who wasn't, who, who was, you know, so showing signs of what we would now call PTSD, I suppose. But obviously in that time period, there, were no, there was no recognition of that, even from himself, probably. And then to have a, a, a vicar's daughter who had the ability to go into every household in the village to be considered socially acceptable in all those households and have that ability to go in and ask questions that, no, a lot of people wouldn't be able to ask. I think that was, for me, the key, that she could do all those things. She could go in and find out all that information. Of course, she takes it back to him. She's also trying to... He's quite depressed, I think. She's also trying to get him motivated and interested again. So it kind of starts off as a, you know, her trying to do that and ends up in this investigation. They've had eight adventures already, uh, all of which I really enjoyed. Do you plan to continue their story? Uh, I think not, because I think, you know, in a small village, in my opinion, um, once you've killed off lots of people, you're kind of like looking around for more people to kill. It starts to get, you know, a bad reputation. I felt that their story, you know, in that they, they had their romance arc as well, and they ended up happily married. I'm sorry to give that away. Um, but... Um, I think it just felt complete in that one and brought it round from the beginning book where we start with her in the rectory um, being, you know, slightly exploited by her, her very lazy father, who's the vicar, um, to that that circle of coming back to the last book, which is about the rectory. It felt like a nice sort of completion to me that everything was, you know, sort of a nice circle. 
put it that way. I can see that. Uh, it is one of the problems. I mean, it's nice to have things in a village because in a village, especially in the 19th century, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everything about everybody. But on the other hand, there aren't, you know, if one person gets murdered in a generation, that's news. So two or three, you did move some of them outside of the village. But still, it, I, I can see why as an author, you would start to think, hmm, Miss Marple got away with it somehow, but most people don't. <laughs> yes, there's not actually that many Miss Marple books, are there? There's probably no more than six or eight, I would say. There's probably not that many more. And some Ms. of Marple. those also take place away from the village. That's true. Yes, I love Miss Marple. I actually, she's one of she's actually my favourite um, Agatha Christie uh, character. Oh, same here. Absolutely. So that brings us to Miss Morton, who would under normal circumstances be addressed as Lady Caroline Morton. Uh, how did she become the center of the new series? I think I was looking to write something that wasn't quite as as cozy. So something that had that more of a slightly gothic vibe, slightly more oppressive vibe of looking at the downside of what happens to somebody like Caroline when her family fortunes are are, are destroyed because of her father, you know, her father's uh, behaviour. What happens to somebody in that society? Um, and I was very interested in that concept. And so that's where the idea came from. And how would you describe her as a personality? I think she's, it, it's interesting because I've written the first book and I'm, I'm obviously writing the second one. She's evolving for me as a character. She has some, she's very strong. She's not prepared to hide away and be ashamed of what's happened to her. And I like that. But I'm also aware that, and I also try very hard to keep people in their time period. Not You don't want some sort of 21st century American gal, you know, striding through a book and, and ignoring conventions and ignoring the restraints of, where she's living and how she has to live. and Because I think those are actually the interesting thing of how did somebody who was strong, because there's always been strong women, how did they survive? How did they find a way to become as independent as they could when the whole society was not interested in letting them do that, you know? Yes, I agree. I mean, that's what I explore in my novels also, um, is how women cope in this very restrictive society, which just, I mean, it was true in 16th century Russia, but it's equally true in Victorian England that they, their main job was to have babies, basically, legitimate babies for the right man. Yes. <laughs> and that was it. Yes. Um, so as a result of her traumatic past, Caroline has left her aunt's home, uh, which is itself a little bit scandalous because as a young noblewoman, she's supposed to be supported by her family. Uh, and she's taken a wage-paying job in London. So explain for our listeners, please, what that means for her as an English noblewoman in 1837. That's a, a really brave thing to do. Because, you know, the ex, it, you know, what people expected in those days was for you to retire, you know, retire gracefully to, if you had them, some kind of relative who would give you a home and feed you, but then would have expectations that you were to be grateful for that and that you, your life was then to serve that family for the rest of your days in whatever capacity they wanted you to, which would basically be 
you know, like a, a maid to the, the or what we would call maybe a personal assistant to the, the, the house owner or an unpaid nanny or a governess. Um, it was all about your social status. But for most women, that's what they had to do. And Caroline decides not to allow her father's shame to to dictate her life. And I think that's her strength. So taking a paying job, and, and I think if you've read the book, you'll know that her aunt is horrified by that and trying to get her back, was a very brave step to do. And the beginning of her becoming a different person. Her employer is Mrs. Frogerton. Uh, what is Mrs. Frogerton's background? So she's this um, very interesting woman who grew up in the north of England, in the industrial north, who she was married into a family who owned potteries and china makers and very, very um, not socially Caroline's class, but obviously has made a lot of money and ended up, when her husband died, literally controlling the family businesses very successfully um, and now has a daughter who benefits from that by having a nice large dowry to bring to London to find the sort of husband that she wants. She's also a very appealing character to me, Mrs. Frogerton. I mean, she's quite lively and, and vivacious and almost a foil to Caroline in some ways. Yes, I think so. She's She's got that northern, she says what she thinks. She doesn't have to worry about, she doesn't care what people think about her. You know, she's she's doing what she's doing for her daughter. She doesn't care if people think she's, you know, northern or lower class or she's just who she is. And she exactly, she can, she has that element of fun as well, which Caroline, I think, lacks a little, uh, obviously from what's happened to her. But she brings that that optimism and that that questioning into their relationship and that grounding for Caroline, which I think she really needs to have somebody who's totally got her back. Her daughter, Dorothy, um, who, as you mentioned, is about to make her social debut, is not quite as enthusiastic about Caroline. Um, what can you tell us about their relationship? I think it's quite fractious to begin with because Dorothy is, you know, 18, she thinks she knows everything. She wants to marry a duke. She's got lots of money. She's very pretty. She thinks she knows every. you know, you do when you're 18. You think you can do everything yourself. And having Caroline there trying to explain the intricacies of how a social, how society works at, at you know, the level of the highest levels of society works, she finds it frustrating and annoying. And she doesn't listen very well to what Caroline is trying to help her with. Um, but I think that's, you know, she's a teenager. That's fairly much how she is. But she, they do, I think as the book goes on, you, they sort of come to more of a, an agreement. Yes, they do. Uh, and you're right, she's 18. So of course she acts like that. <laughs> so given all of this, uh, how do the three of them wind up at Aunt Eleanor's country house party? I think Aunt Caroline's Aunt Eleanor is still really trying to get Caroline to come back um, because, and she also has the advantage of she's still housing Caroline's sister. So there's a, you know, there's a lure for Caroline to come. And the fact that 
uh, Eleanor, Auntie, Aunt Eleanor also invites um, her employer, Mrs. Froggerton, with the, also the lure of, well, this will be a good entree for Dorothy to, for, to society and to meet people her own age in a smaller environment. Um, that's why they all end up there. Um, you know, it's like that. Poor Caroline, she, she's trying to do her job and give her employer the best thing, but she also wants to see her sister. So I can totally understand why she did that. And the house party is also a birthday party, right? That's right. It's uh, her cousin Mabel's birthday party. And Mabel is a, has a very interesting take on her birthday and wants lots of different people there, which is another reason, I think, why Aunt Eleanor allows the Froggertons to attend. Once there, Caroline finds herself in a kind of social half-world, which is based on what you were talking about earlier, the, the fact that as a paid companion, she's lost status in some way. Uh, she's treated as part of the family, but uh, her former fiancé snubs her and her cousin Eliza is <laughs> openly hostile. Let's talk about Lord Francis first. Why is he so cold to Caroline? I think that's um, something that comes out in the story somewhat. But I think it's that, that whole English class system. It's so very precise. And when somebody sort of their status changes, I don't think people quite know how to deal with it. You know, he, he behaves quite badly towards her to start with. I think a lot of it is because he just He'd rather she just wasn't there and had disappeared and done done the right thing in his many people's eyes, just subsiding into the background and being grateful to have a home and not to be standing there saying, look at me, I'm not responsible for what my father's done. I don't want you to give away spoilers, but just tell us a little bit who he is. Oh, so she was um, engaged to marry him. And when the scandal happened with her father, um, the, the engagement was broken off. And he is an earl's son as well, right? Or a nobleman's son, anyway. Yes, he is. He is. Eliza doesn't even have the excuse of a broken betrothal. <laughs> but it's also clear pretty early on that the hostility between her and Caroline far predates the problems caused by Caroline's father. And in fact, there's a lot of tension at Greenwood Hall um, caused by Aunt Eleanor's tendency to take in what she calls waifs and strays. Um, could you say a bit about that? I'm very interested in tension in, in um, family relationships, having come from, I have uh, five sisters myself. So I'm very interested in that, how people feel their status is in within a family, how they feel threatened by other people, how that, 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 that who has, who's in favor, who's not in favor, these little, little microaggressions. I think they're all very fascinating things. And that whole house is a whole, you know, disaster of uh, microaggression and um, status and long held grudges. And I think that's, you know, that's just how it works. And that's why the book works. And that's what I was hoping to do was show how Eliza doesn't, has always been jealous of Caroline, I think, because um, her mother has always relied on Caroline more than on her. 
Um, and that's very common in families, as you know, that there's, you know, these grudges start quite young and then they don't, people don't change and they, they let those grudges grow up with them. I do think that that's very characteristic. And of course, you want those sources of tension in a novel and especially in a mystery novel where it's very important to keep the readers on the edge of their seats, never quite knowing which tension is going to explode. Um, who are the waifs and strays as well, though? Oh, right. Uh, so Lady Eleanor is what in those times would be called a very charitable woman. So she has always, over the years, taken in orphans and children who've been abandoned. And uh, she, she, you know, that makes her look like a good Christian woman. And, and, it, and I'm sure that that's where it comes from. But it also gives her a great uh, sort of, way of having extra housemaids and stable boys and you know that ability to be the great lady i think um and she she thought she brings them up you know she brings them up properly again it comes back to that lodging and board and being grateful you know and that that's the thing that's there's a lot of that in this book of that how how much you have to be grateful to somebody for doing that there's caroline there's her sister there's the waste and strays. There's her great aunt who lives also lives in has lived in the house all her life, being you know her whole life in two rooms, being grateful for being housed. So there's a, there's a, a constant theme of that and what that does to a person. Indeed, it causes a great deal of resentment in most people. You know, you are grateful on the one hand, but you don't like being constantly reminded of the fact that you should be grateful, which is what Aunt Eleanor is particularly good at. <laughs> yes, exactly. Almost in the moment Caroline enters the house, uh, she sees signs of trouble. She notices the butler is missing. We won't say why or what happens as a result of that. And the local do- doctor is summoned. So introduce us to Dr. Oliver Harris. He's this he's this whirlwind really. He's not really suited to being a county country doctor. He's rude, he's opinionated, he's stubborn, he says he doesn't respect his betters, so he's you know, everything that you really wouldn't want coming into your house. Um and he and Caroline sort of strike sparks off each other immediately because he tends to make assumptions about people and he has no he, he just says what he thinks. He's very much like a lot of doctors I've met actually. He is really. Caroline's main goal uh, other than to establish an independent life for herself is to be able to support her younger sister Susan uh, who is you mentioned is staying with Aunt Eleanor. What do we need to know about Susan? Susan is a lot younger than uh, Caroline and she's fairly much grown up at Greenwood Hall um, and is very immersed into that life. Um, She's a lot more fearful than Caroline. She's made friends with her cousins more than Caroline and she's very anxious about what will come of her and Caroline is concerned because she can already see how her aunt Eleanor is grooming um, Susan to become, you know, what Caroline was meant to be, an unpaid governess for the for the waste and strays and the children in the nursery. Um, and Caroline does not want that for her sister. 
But Susan is very worried about rocking the boat. Susan likes everything to remain the same. Um, and uh, she's very fond of her cousin Mabel and, and likes living in the nursery. I was never quite sure how old Susan is. Could you tell us? That's a really good question off the top of my head. I can't remember. Um, she's about, uh, let me think, she's about 16, 16? Yes, yeah, 16, I'd say. So she is getting to a that. point where she has to make a transition. 16 is the age when That's a girl right. would make her debut almost. That's right, seven, 16, 17. You know, she's, she'd be perfectly, according to Aunt Eleanor, perfectly capable of running the running the nursery or running being a governess assistant at that point. Right. Um, and, of course, she's not going to get a debut because she doesn't have a fortune. That's right. That's right. So you mentioned Caroline's cousin Mabel, uh, whose birthday ball has brought everyone together at Greenwood Hall. And um, tell us a little bit about her as a personality. She's quite distinctive. I think she's... I think sometimes it comes back to that teenager thing is that when you're sort of 17, 18, I think everything is very black and white to you and you're very, very convinced of the, you know, the injustices of the world and how you can, you can write them and change them. And I think she is particularly like that. Um, she truly believes in that, people should be held responsible for what they do in life. She's very sympathetic to what's happened to Caroline. I think she's actually the only person in the entire house who sympathizes with Caroline and, and is angry for her. Um, but I think it comes again to that age group, that, that, that absolute belief that you are right and that there's no shades, there's no grays in anything. And that's who she is. As you were talking, I was remembering something that I'd like to uh, get across to the listeners. It's a really classic uh, closed room kind of mystery, this one. And I'm wondering if you could just set the scene as to what keeps everyone uh, stuck there while the mystery is being resolved. Oh, well, they're in, they're in sort of like the, uh, the fens, the reclaimed land. And uh, they're surrounded by water. And there's a big storms and floods and the bridge breaks down and the water becomes too high to cross. So they're all stuck in this house in the rain and the storms without the ability to really get out very well. And it's wonderfully spooky when you're reading it. The, the descriptions are wonderfully spooky. Good. I was trying to go for a little bit of that gothic kind of feel, you know, that those, those books were very popular back then and that whole idea of, you know, the haunted house in the middle of the fence and, the, you know, no escape was, is, is very interesting, I think. Yes, I think you succeeded. Um, we can't go too much farther without giving away crucial details. Uh, we'll suffice it to say that someone dies because that's what the title <laughs> indicates. <laughs> And Caroline sets out to solve the crime, as we could also guess from the title. Um, but before we close, have we left out any favorite characters or incidents of yours? I think you got most of it. I think I, I really enjoyed writing the, the interactions between Dr. Harris and, uh, and Caroline, this sort of 
snappiness that they have between them. And I also really enjoyed writing Caroline's sort of the way she she starts to change in these books that she starts to grow and she starts to think of herself and she starts to think about money and how she can, you know, how she can succeed and what she needs to do that and what she's prepared to do. And I like that. I like that little ambiguity, if I could speak probably in her, that she was, you know, willing to maybe change significantly to, to survive. I thought that was very interesting, and I was. And I don't really plot a lot. I t- I'm a very organic writer. I tend to just discover as I go along, which for a mystery writer is, you know, extremely scary. Apparently, but that's how I write. And uh, so I, I, I kind of learned about her as I went along, and how she, how she sort of dealt with some situations. So I was quite surprised, and I, but I was like, that's interesting. She's not quite. She's a little bit more ambiguous than than I realised, and I, I really like that about her. I'm impressed that you can write a mystery uh, in the seat of the pants style. It's my style too, but I don't write <laughs> mysteries. So I, I just have an idea where the characters are going and hope they get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I I have to produce something for my editor. We've done, I mean, I've written about, I don't know, 60 romance novels probably. And uh, this is what, number seven or eight, nine. And it's with the same editor. So he's very good and he trusts me. I give him like the barest essentials. I do plot, I actually write like two pages out for my mysteries, which is like more than I write for my romances. Um, so to me, that's hard work and that's plotting. But, you know, I, I have to know basically who the murderer is. is you know, that's, an, that's, that's important to know um, and work it back from there. But I don't really know much more in there because to me, you're, in the mystery, you're discovering things. And because it's amateur, you know, sleuths, that whole discovery process for me is part of writing the book. I don't know what's going to happen sometimes or who's going to pop up. And I like that. I find that very interesting. I think when you've written a lot of books, you trust yourself, right? Yes, I think that's true. And I think it does help um, probably because, you know, it's hard to get that sense of discovery across. If it's too contrived, then the reader starts to pull back. I also wanted to say that I really liked Caroline's interactions with Mrs. Frogerton, especially as the mystery starts to ramp up, because I think uh, Mrs. Frogerton, in a sense, pushes her towards that growth um, by taking a very different approach. Yes, and I I think, you know, I'm I'm writing the next book at the moment, and the first book is all about establishing those relationships. And now, you know, I, I feel more confident writing the second book in how they are and who they are, you know, and that's, it's actually more, for me, it's more enjoyable writing the second book in a series than the first one. That's always hard to do. What would you like people to take away from Miss Morton and the English House Party murder? I think I'd like them to get a feeling for the intricacies of the English class system, the the way families interact with each other, the repercussions of what you do to people, how you treat people. Um, I think they're all in there. And, and, you know, that little closeness to it and that that tightness of a family group imploding in some ways in these in small ways but imploding is, is uh, for me is, is very interesting I like that's how I like to write 
You've mentioned that you're already working on her next adventure. Can you tell us anything about it at all? Timing, basic ideas? Oh, I wish I, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> um, it's called. It's going to be called uh, Miss Morton and the Spirits of the Underworld, um, and it's going to be set in London. And there are going to be some elements of the emerging spiritualism and mesmerism in it. But that's all I can tell you. Okay, well, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Catherine Lloyd about Miss Morton and the English House Party murder, as well as her previous novels. Find out more about her at catherine-lloyd.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.